In the following live session recording, Anthony George, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Atlanta, Georgia, leads the discussion on our inadequacy in preaching. Every preacher realizes their personal inadequacy when it comes to the demands of preaching week in and week out. Anthony George, Associate Pastor and frequent preacher at First Baptist Church Atlanta, will unpack helpful disciplines which can enhance both preparation and preaching as we depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's Word. Let's join Anthony now. So uh, a little bit of the background for how, how I ended up speaking here today. I was called by Larry Wynn, who serves at the Georgia Baptist Convention, and he asked me if I would lead a breakout session and speak to preachers about preaching. I said, "Oh no, I'm not the guy for that. I'm not. I'm, you don't. I don't. I've never spoken to preachers about preaching. I mean, I love to preach, but talking to people who do it and offering anything of value, I, I just, I don't feel I'm your man for that." And he said, "Well, let's talk through this." And so we had a little counseling session over the telephone. <laughs> he said, "Why wouldn't you feel you had anything to offer?" I said, "Because I've always struggled with a sense of inadequacy as a preacher." I've always felt that I fell short of others who had shaped my life and others who had a much higher profile ministry and who, who seemed to me to be much more skilled, proficient in preaching. And I never felt I've attained under that same status. So I thought, what would I have? And if I had ever dealt with a sense of inadequacy prior to 2012, it certainly was compounded when I moved to Atlanta to be Dr. Stanley's associate pastor. <laughs> you want to talk about feeling inadequate is uh, being his backup for the Sundays he's away in a church where people want to hear him. I often joke and say in the church that I left to come to Atlanta, I used to apologize when I was not preaching because the pastor had to take time off, I came to a church where I apologized when I was the preacher. <laughs> I'm so sorry Dr. Stanley's not here today has become second nature for me anytime I stand up on a Sunday morning. So that sense of inadequacy has at times been crippling to me. And so Larry, we're all we're on the phone, this is the same conversation, and he said, then there's your topic. Do you think you're the only preacher who wrestles with inadequacy? I said, well, if you put it that way, I'm sure there are others who struggle with those feelings. He said, then talk about that. So that's kind of what shaped the, the topic today. And I can tell you, I feel very adequate speaking about inadequacy, okay? <laughs> so what I want to do is to uh, just kind of walk through several key points about the subject of feeling inadequate as a preacher. And this is a, a much smaller group than we had at the first time. I want you to feel uh, free to raise your hand or to ask a question or to stop me if, I, if, if there's some point you want us to talk about a little more or a point that I need to repeat. Uh, we can certainly do that. Uh, one thing I want you to think about at the outset is in what good company we are when we feel inadequate to do God's work. If there's one thing we see when we survey the Bible and we see these recorded accounts of God calling men to, to serve him and to be his prophet or his leader for his people, um, it's not uncommon for them to object with their reasons for which they're not qualified to do it. And what comes to my mind first is the call of Moses. When Moses basically tried to talk the Lord out of calling him to do it, he gave him all the reasons why he was incapable of leading the people and certainly of being God's uh, spokesperson before the people. And there are other instances we could talk about from Scripture. So, you know, if I'm wrestling with my own sense of inadequacy, which I have felt from around 16 or 17 years of age when I first started sensing a call to preach, I'm now 50, I still deal with it. I am glad to know that God cared enough to record accounts in the Word that I can turn to that are trend where, uh, where the accounts are unfiltered and we see Many people who've come before us have wrestled with this. Lord, this is bigger than my ability to handle. So that it's out of that context that I want to share with you today. The first thing I want to say is that inadequacy, when it comes to our preaching, can really be a, a gift from God because it forces us to depend on God. 
If you're jotting it down, it would just be this. My inadequacy forces me to depend upon God. I think when a preacher loses his sense of personal uh, inadequacy, then he's probably in a dangerous place. In other words, maybe he's come to a place where he's, he feels like he's gotten this thing down. You know, I'm good at this. I've learned the trade. And the problem with that is when, when, when a man of God feels like he's got it down and he's perfected the craft, then where's the need for God when you feel that confident in your ability to preach? Inadequacy is a wonderful gift to keep us dependent upon God for what we do as preachers. So here's a great foundational text for what we're talking about today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And it's the first five verses where Paul says, Brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And, and he says in verse number five of 1 Corinthians two, the goal of that was that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so it's a great reminder there of Paul's understanding that the, the importance of allowing God to be magnified above and beyond any personal charm or skill or ability of the communicator, the preacher, it means that we want people's faith to be directed towards God and not misdirected towards the, the vessel of God, the messenger of God. I think it's interesting that he says, I didn't come to you with excellence of, of speech, nor with loads of wisdom. But listen to the, the uh, way Paul described his ministry in Corinth. He said in verse 3 of chapter 2, I came in weakness, I came with a lot of fear, and he even says with much trembling. That's him writing, describing his own recollection of his personal sense of inadequacy in ministry when he was preaching to the Corinthians and founding this church to which he's writing. Now, add to this, in the second Corinthian letter, Paul even quotes what some of his critics said about him. In 2 Corinthians 10.10, he says, my critics say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Now, isn't it interesting, they were, his critics weren't even attacking his doctrine, which they certainly uh, would do at other times. But he's quoting what they had to say simply about how he looked. <laughs> that his physical presence is unimpressive, whether it was his stature or his countenance, what his face looked like, or maybe even how he dressed. And he quotes his critics as saying that they said Paul's way of speaking is contemptible meaning they were saying he was a terrible communicator. So, you know, that'll bless your heart right there when you think about your critics saying those things about you. And Paul says, they say these things about me. So at every turn he was reminded, whether it was through his own sense of limited ability or by being reminded by his critics of his inadequacies, he was constantly drawn to a dependence on God to do what he did. And that's why I'm saying that inadequacy can be a great gift from God to keep us in what I call that good place. And what is the good place? The good place is the dependent place, the place of abiding and realizing without him we can do nothing. Um, here are some challenges that, we, that um, are really evidences of inadequacy and reasons for it. And the first one is this. Every time we stand up to preach, we realize I'm just a sinner preaching to other sinners. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many times, I, I personally believe this is the hardest part of preaching. How many times have you come to a passage or a text and you knew it's what you were supposed to be preaching that day and there was something in your own life that was confronted by that passage of Scripture and you say, who am I to stand up and tell them about this? If they knew about me, what God knows about me, they wouldn't listen to a thing I had to say about this. It's a reminder of, dear Lord, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this, but when we depend upon him, somehow we stand up and we speak. 
It's a wonderful thing to remember, by the way, though, when you are confronted with an area of your own personal weakness or sin, whether it's a present battle or something you've wrestled with in the past, it certainly should temper the way we speak to other sinners, shouldn't mm -hmm. it? Because when we're preaching to people about matters of sin, we realize we're not preaching down at them. We're in the same boat they're in. Mm -hmm. We are all the audience for the authority of the text. Mm -hmm. And that's an important reminder for us. Another thing that's, that is hand in hand with this is that before you and I can preach a text, we have to yield to that text ourselves. The goal of a preaching experience, of a preaching moment, is to take God's Word and in the power of the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit to take the Word and press it as a mold into the life of the person, ultimately for salvation and in the believer's life, conformity to the likeness of Christ. But it's a, it's a pressure situation. But before we release that word out to squeeze people into the mold of Christ's likeness, that word has to be impressed upon us. And how many times has someone come up, mainly older people come up and say, preacher, you got all over me today in that sermon. And you know what your response is? Your response is, well, it got all over me before it got all over you because I have been wrestling with this scripture all week long. It is a reminder of how inadequate we are. Another reminder of inadequacy when we're preaching is when something comes up in the text or in a series you're doing, if you're doing something topically, uh, you are forced to speak to issues that you know are present in your life or, or uh, your family's life. It may not be a sin, it may just be a particular challenge that's taking place in your life or in your family's life. For instance, if, if uh, uh, just to give you an example, if you all want to speak from Ephesians about, you know, fathers don't provoke your children to wrath and do something about parenting. And, uh, you know, you're thinking about some challenges that you're having as a parent, then you're going to be a little more sensitive as to how you talk about that. Another thing is, if your kids are still in the church, you're putting them in an even bigger fishbowl when you're up there pontificating on how to parent children. And on and on we could go. It, it's another slap in the face to say, dear God, I need your help to address this issue when it's so close to home to something that I'm going through. It may be something that one of your adult siblings is going through. Anything that hits close to home has the ability to cripple us or at least stifle us in our willingness to preach about it and in the liberty we'd like to have when we're preaching about it. Here's another thing that is especially true in, in smaller congregations, and that is the preacher struggles with what he knows about people as he tries to preach what God says to people. If that makes sense. And I say smaller churches because typically in smaller congregations, the pastor will have the privilege of interacting more with the congregation. And um, in my current experience, you know, it's a big mega church. It's not been as much that way for me, but in every setting I was in before coming here, um, I knew people on a personal basis. I was in people's homes and took retreats and trips with people, went to the youth camp, and so, uh, and your shingle is out on the door to counsel, you know. So you have people coming in, and let's just say you've been working with a couple because she found him late one night on the computer looking at something he shouldn't have been looking at. So they've been in your office sifting through all of that, trying to recover from that in their marriage. And you've got a message coming up on purity from First Thessalonians where it talks about uh, let each of you possess his vessel with honor and all that. And you're thinking, oh no, that's coming up. I hope they don't think that I'm aiming this sermon at them because they were in my office last week. You could play that out a thousand different ways. The more you know about your flock, the more challenging it can be to preach to your flock because of those details, and you would never want them to think, I'm aiming this at them, or I'm preaching this sermon as a reaction to what their family is going through, what their marriage is going through, what his business is going through. All of these things drive us back to our knees to say, Lord, I love these people. I would never want to injure them, but please help me by the, under the power of your spirit to carefully communicate this message in such a way that it is not 
uh, does, does not sound as though it has been aimed. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, he said, We do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ the Lord, and we, we are your bondservants for Jesus' sake. I'm quoting that verse because it's a beautiful reminder from, from Paul's pen that our preaching really is not about us anyway. It's not about us as the messenger. It's about the message that God has given us. Our preaching is not about the preacher, strengths, weaknesses, and everything in between. Our preaching should be centered in the person of Jesus Christ. Any preacher who does not struggle with, who does not acknowledge his own weaknesses and limitations, I believe risks forfeiting God's power on his life. Because if you think about it, by never acknowledging weaknesses and limitations, you're telling God, I got this. I'll come back, check in if I need you. But by being continually mindful of your weaknesses, of your inabilities, of your limitations, it's God's way, almost like a thorn in the flesh, Paul would say, to keep pride out of our preaching and out of our lives and to keep us humbly dependent upon God for everything we do, but especially for preaching. So if we're not careful... We can give too much attention to the gifts of a preacher, to the personality of a preacher, to the craft and skill of a preacher. All of those things are tools that God can use and tools with which he's equipped us. But we must remember that personality, gifts, abilities, skills, all of these things are gifts from God, but they are not the source of power. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be ever uh, aware of our need to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Years ago, I heard this preacher, he was an evangelist, tell a story about somewhere out in the frontier in the days of old-fashioned revival, someone got a local Indian chief to come hear a preacher preach at a revival. And the preacher stomped and snorted and spit and jumped up and down and screamed and called people to salvation. And uh, after the service was over, the fellow who had invited the Indian said, well, what do you think about uh, the sermon tonight? He said, well, um, strong wind, loud thunder, but no rain. <laughs> and, you know, it's a simple story, but I've never forgotten that illustration. Strong wind, loud thunder, but no rain. And how many times have I walked up with a sermon I felt really good about? I've stomped, snorted, jumped up, down, spit, run up, down. I mean, I've, I've gone crazy in a pulpit before and walked away feeling that God was far from it. The goal is, yes, all the things we do to enhance a message can be tools that he uses. But it's like that old song that we used to sing in the hymn book called Brethren We've Met to Worship. It says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So we need the Spirit of the Holy One. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul writes this, Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but listen to this. He says, Our adequacy is from God. I love that statement. Our adequacy is from God. I think God takes great pleasure in the preacher, his called servant saying, Lord, I am inadequate to do what you've called me to do, but my adequacy comes from you. Amen. I am inadequate, but you are fully adequate. Mm -hmm. That's the beautiful tension of a spirit-dependent preacher. A, a, a warning, somewhat out of context, because it's in the context of restoring someone who has fallen and wants to uh, uh, be forgiven. But in that context in Galatians 6, verse 3, Paul says, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Amen. And how many, how many preachers have you seen that have a little strut in their step? That just get a little bit too cocky for their own good. I have a friend who pastors a church north of Atlanta, and I've known him for about 15 years. And he's pretty outspoken. Just when it, when he and I visit, he'll he's several times he's mentioned a 
a preacher. He said, you know, I know I saw so-and-so at this conference. And he said, Anthony, I'm telling you what, I believe he'd signed his own Bible. Mm. <laughs> I've never forgotten him signing that. <laughs> but uh, just, you know, and I would never want to judge anybody by how they look or how they walk. And I'm sure people have judged me. But here's what we need to remember. If we get to thinking we're something, when God knows we're really nothing yeah. apart from Him, then Paul said in Galatians, we're just deceiving ourselves. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do a lot. Apart from me, you can do some things. No, apart no. from me, how much can you do? Yeah, he said, you can do nothing. So that's why I'm saying today that when you and I wrestle with this inadequacy, what a gift from God it can be as His reminder, depend on me, lean on me, be desperate for me. Here's another thing. Not only is it something that keeps us dependent on God, inadequacy implies or reveals that you understand the nature of spiritual battle. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that there are battles that you and I face not just because we're Christians, although there are battles we face because of that, but there are battles that you face spiritually simply because you're a preacher. Because I think if there's one thing the enemy hates, it is preaching, biblical preaching, preaching that imparts the text of Scripture to human hearts. He hates that. And I believe he hates those who take it seriously who've been called to do it. Ephesians 6 reminds us it's not a flesh and blood battle, right? It's a spiritual battle of principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness. My favorite passage on warfare is 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul says, basically, you cannot fight a spiritual battle with fleshly weapons. He says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty through God, which is spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. And in essence, is that not what preaching is about? Pulling down strongholds, the stronghold of spiritual blindness, people who are lost, the stronghold of spiritual, of, of sinful addictions and of, of carnality among believers, all kinds of strongholds. This is what we're coming into conflict with in the task of preaching. We're handling the holy words of God and we're trying to take those words that have, that have taken us And somehow, like Jesus said in the parable of the sower, we get up on Sunday morning with a bag of seed and we're putting our hand in the seed and we're trying to throw the seed the distance from the pulpit to the pew. Mm -hmm. And the gulf between the pulpit and the pew is the gulf of the curse of sin. Mm -hmm. We are in contention with the carnal nature of human beings. And the gulf between the pulpit and the pews is a is a battlefield in which the forces of, of, of demons and darkness are resisting what we're saying and doing. Would you agree with me that when we stand to impart God's truth, we are in combat with attitudes, mm-hmm. with apathy, with addictions, with rebellion, with cynicism, with anger, with forms of prejudice, with uh, uh, all kinds of strongholds. And if there's one thing I believe it is this, everything that is detestable about ungodliness out in the world is present in the church. Mm -hmm. It really is. This was brought to my awareness when I pastored my first church in seminary. I was at Southeastern Seminary. I accepted a little church of about 50 people out in the Tidewater area of Southeast Virginia. It was a beautiful little white siding church that was built in 1878, a little cedar-shaped shingle uh, steeple with a bell, a bell in the tower and the little Cape Cod brick parsonage next door on Main Street. I thought, man, this is Mayberry, USA. That lasted about a week. And inside that church, I was shocked at the kinds of challenges that I faced. And as we reached people in the community, a little rural farming community. We had, uh, you know, crack cocaine even back then. Mm-hmm. We, I, I dealt with an incest situation, alcoholic addiction, domestic abuse, everything that you could think of outside in the world is sitting there on Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. 
And, and, and you and I must remember that our wit, our ingenuity, our creativity, our illustrations, our skill, our vocabulary, our use of technology in our sermons, whether it's PowerPoint or movie clips that you integrate into the sermon, our fashion, our Rolexes. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen these recent posts about these pastors and their high-dollar apparel. Our hipness. None of the above is a match for the yeah. spiritual forces with yeah. which we're contending as we prepare sermons and deliver them. None of those things has the power to tear down strongholds. Only the Spirit of Almighty God. So here's the thing. We are in a battle when it comes to our preparation. Now if, we, if we could just stop right here, every one of you would have a testimony about how difficult it is to set aside time, protect that time, and have consistent preparation time. The phone is going to chime, text message, email. Someone's going to knock at the door. There's going to be something your children need from you and they can't wait. It's got to happen right now. All, we, uh, I was just talking to someone a moment ago. The dog's going to have it. <laughs> There's always going to be something that is vying for your preparation time. Do you think any of that's coincidental or is there a spiritual battle involved? Of There's a spiritual battle involved because all great preaching is preceded by great preparation. Mm -hmm. You say, well, what about great awakenings when it was spontaneous? Tell me when you had one of those in your church. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying it can't happen. I'm just saying the God who calls us to preach calls us to prepare. Yeah, not only that, but there's a battle for the preacher's thoughts, his concentration. I mean, how many things in a given day does your mind get clouded by? Because your concentration, you know, in an ideal universe, how many of you agree with me, you'd love to live a life so that all week long, your total mental fixation was on your Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> that nothing competed for that. That that sermon was owning you. And by Friday, it had been, become a part of your very being because your concentration had been unbroken. Mm. Well, I know that's not reality. And, and you've got to be available to church members, to family, and to other pressing needs. But I am telling you, Satan turns up the heat by distracting your concentration from preaching mm. because he knows what happens when an anointed servant preaches. And here's, the, here's the, the, the third thing. Not only is there a battle over my preparation, a battle over my concentration, but that, that battle reaches its fever pitch in what we call the moment of truth, this, the morning sermon, yeah. the, the sermon event. How many of you know it's happened on Saturday night? You've got the sermon ready and Saturday night something breaks loose. What about Sunday morning? You ever had a World War III in your household on a Sunday morning? Your church members talk about it, but it happens to preachers too, doesn't it? And you know what I found? It can break loose in the parking lot when somebody comes and gets up in my face between the car and the front yeah. door and puke all over me about something they're upset about yeah. at the church. And all of a sudden, that joy that I had to deliver that message... I can't see past the complaint or the grievance. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen all the time. But if you've pastored very long, it's happened to you. It's happened in the hallway where a deacon comes up and says, i got to talk to you right now. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, can't you wait until, you know, after the sermon? No, we got to talk right now. And how many of you have been sitting there in the service mm -hmm. and, and the battle breaks out in the service, whether it's a a sound feedback that they can't get under uh, under wraps or uh, you know in my in my last church in Florida I don't know why but it just every time the wind would blow and a and lightning would strike nearby the power in our whole part of Winter Park would go out mm. I can't tell you how many times it happened on a Sunday morning mm. so you know the lights are out no no uh, PA system everybody's and of course the humidity's building moment by moment the heat that happened so many times on a Sunday morning right when the choir was singing. I said, Lord, couldn't you, you know, couldn't, is there any way this could have been? But you, you have to move through those times. I guess what I'm saying is there's not room for coincidence when it comes to all the obstacles that you and I climb over to get a sermon ready and to deliver it. 
to the people on Sunday or whenever you meet. This is warfare. Remember this. Just because there are people who attract big crowds does not necessarily mean people are getting set free. The effectiveness of an entertaining and inspiring service may get the staff members and the pastor giving each other high fives, but it does not necessarily mean a life was changed. That's right. The message that is perfectly crafted, impeccably delivered, is not a guaranteed chain breaker for somebody's destructive habit. Be careful about resting in your methods, in your weekly habits, and in your routines, and in your feeling that you brought a good one that day. Ultimately, it's about God's power. And a very convicting passage for me is Matthew 17, where there was this man whose son was demon-possessed. And you remember the story? He said, my son is often thrown into the water, thrown into the fire. And by the way, I took him to your disciples and they didn't do a thing for him. And Jesus said, how long am I going to have to put up with this? And Jesus said, come out of it. He came out right there. And I wonder if there were people who've come into my services whenever I've preached and they would say to Jesus, I went and heard one of your young men preach. I went and heard that 50-year-old preacher at First Baptist preach taking Dr. Stanley's place when he's out. I went and heard him, but he didn't do anything for me. Mm. Like the disciples. And see, what I want to do is I want to be so inadequate that I'm out of the way for him to be adequate. Mm -hmm. Because I'm telling you, when he says come out, it comes out. (laughs) I say come out, maybe not. Like the disciples. But when Jesus speaks the word, the demons have to flee. So my goal is to get God on my preaching. And being feeling inadequate and, and acknowledging that humbly and depend, de- dependently, that's, I believe, very important. I happen to believe that preaching is one of the greatest acts of faith that you and I can exercise. Because mm. think about it. Uh, how many times ha- have you either had the time you wanted or maybe even more appropriately not had the time you wanted getting it ready? Mm-hmm. And you're standing there and it's almost time for you to stand up. You're singing, the worship's going on, choir, praise band, whatever you have. And you say in your spirit to God's spirit, Lord, if you don't do this, it's not going to happen. (laughs) Now, as, as uncomfortable as that can feel, I believe that's just where we need to be. God, if you don't do this, it won't be done. That's good. Here's, a, here's another thing I want you to jot down. Inadequacy must never become an excuse for stagnation. An excuse for stagnation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, one of the risks of getting too comfortable talking about and thinking about your limitations, my limitations, is that if we're not careful, a certain fatalism can set in. We get this little humble pie talk. Oh, well, Lord, you know my limitations and I'm fully aware of them and you knew me when you called me and I know I'm not the best preacher out there and I'm just a little country preacher and Lord, I'm not as good as so-and-so and I'm just going to do the best I can do and Lord, it is what it is and I'll leave the rest up to you. Now that sounds humble and it can be humble, but what that must never be is a smokescreen for laziness. Well, Lord, I'm just inadequate and I don't, I'm not going to worry about my skill or my craft in preaching. I'm just going to trust you to make up the difference. Well, we do need to trust him to make up the difference. But that should never be a cop-out for not having a passion to constantly improve your preaching game, if you will. You're, this, it's a calling to do it, but it is an art to exercise it. Yes. Preaching is a craft of sorts. I mean, we don't uh, argue with anyone else who says God's called them to do something and it's called a craft or an art in what they do. It's beautiful when it's an art, but we must have a commitment to keep raising the bar on our own preaching. Mm-hmm. So when does that ever stop? When you stop preaching. Yep. And when do you ever stop preaching? Well, I hope it's when you're no longer capable of moving your mouth. But as long as you can move your lips and bless some people with an open Bible and a hot heart for God, you ought to be preaching somewhere where God can use you. Here's the thing. You you would agree with me as believers. 
no matter how long you've been saved, you never stop growing, true or false, then is it not equally true of a preacher in, in preaching? I don't believe we ever stop growing as communicators. Because in case you haven't noticed, although this truth that we're conveying never changes, the way we have to communicate it must change. In fact, one of the biggest complaints about the church is that the church does not respond quickly enough to the changes in the culture. Not by, not by um, editing or revising the, the scriptural truth, but by adapting new methodologies and, and employing new uh, methods and tools as we need to. So I want to challenge you today to make a commitment to raise the bar on your preaching and on your communication techniques. First of all, to always evaluate yourself. I, I, I hate doing that more than anything. I cannot stand watching myself preach. I cannot stand no. listening to myself. I, I just, I don't like it, but I force myself to do it. And you know, uh, somebody's out there critiquing something about your delivery. I had a man in my last church say, do you know that you look to your right hand 34 times and you only look to your left 12 times? No. He sat there and counted the number of times. Now that church... We had multiple services, and um, so it would load in. The door was over here on the right, so that it would load in from the right side, and this side would be empty a lot of times. So the pulpit wouldn't move. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I was looking over here more, but I had to be mindful that when I'm up on the mag screens, a lot of people are watching me on the screen, and I'm constantly doing this. I had to be mindful of how it came across. Well, I, res I didn't really appreciate the comment at the time. But it's little things like that that can become a distraction to somebody who wants to hear the message. You know, in preaching class, I remember they talked about preachers jingling their keys and coins in their pocket when they're up there preaching. There are those kinds of things that you want to constantly be thinking about to eliminate a distraction from the message that you're trying to get out. Um, I am purposing in my heart continually to become more effective. I don't know that I'm becoming more effective, but I want to because it's something God has called me to do. Right. Why would I not want to continually be growing in, in my ability to do that with his help? Here's some pitfalls is when I'm too comfortable with where I am in my preaching, where I just feel like, okay, I've got this. I'm pretty good. Or when you get too satisfied with your knowledge of scripture or when you rely too much on wells that you've already dug. Yeah. And, and by that I mean sermons you've preached and filed away for later retrieval. You come across a text, you say you just come across Ephesians chapter 2 and you say, well, I preached on that several years ago. I'm just going to pull that outline out. Don't. Pull the outline out. Review the outline. But why not ask God, speak to me in a fresh way over this passage? Don't just settle for something you did years ago on that. And to me, uh, when I left my previous church to come here to First Baptist Atlanta, I had 15 years of digitally you know, cataloged outlines and sermons. And I, I made a, a deliberate decision that I did not want to simply retrieve those sermons from a previous you know, ministry environment I wanted to draw off what I had gleaned, what I had learned, but I wanted God to give me a freshness yeah. to revisit the text, to let the Holy Spirit draw out any fresh insights He would like for me to have, and also to remember this, that the sermon is not simply about the timeless text, the authoritative text. The sermon is crafted around the audience who will be listening to it. Mm -hmm. It's just like when Paul went to the synagogue, he preached differently than he preached on Mars Hill. So the sermon is shaped by the context in which you preach it. So the context of the church in Florida is much different than a context of a First Baptist Church of Atlanta. So I might have relied on some nuggets, as I would say, some insights from previous studies but I have not preached anything here, and that's not a boast in any way. It's just a resolve that I've had. I don't want to rely on wells I've already dug. I want to get fresh insight 
for a fresh context for me. Stagnation is when you stop growing, when you stop working on it, when you lose your passion for a fresh touch of God, the fresh word from God, a fresh approach to the sacred text. Now I'm going to say something to you. Please, 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 please do not get out of the Bible preaching business. Hmm. Because fewer and fewer pastors are preaching. I don't mean you have to preach an expository sermon, you know, verse by verse through a book of the Bible. But I do believe in textually driven messages. Because if God's word is the power, if God's word is the seed, how can I improve upon the power of God, the Word of God, by anything I have to, to, to say in its place? So I just challenge us to stay linked to this as the driving force and, the, and as the content, the, the major content in preaching is the, is the authoritative text. Okay, so here's what my desire to grow has led me to do and what it should lead all of us to do. First one is to read books about preaching. I don't mean, you know, read a book a week and, and not even a book a month, but, but what about a couple of books a year that you could just break apart, even some classic works on preaching. One of my favorites is a book by John Stott called Between Two Worlds. And um, it's, it's, it's really a classic. Uh, another one is a book by Haddon Robinson called Biblical Preaching. That's really a standard. For years it was the standard in evangelical seminary homiletics classes. Um, but, but there's a lot of good, good stuff out there now on it. Read books about preaching. I'll tell you something else that I do that I would encourage you to do is to read books about communication in general. Because uh, not all good communicators are preachers. So there are a lot of people that have helpful insights on effective communication who aren't even believers, but they can impart some helpful insights if you want to uh, read those kinds of things. Um, one of the things I enjoy doing is listening to other preachers and other communicators. So there are several guys on podcasts I listen to. I also like going to church websites and saying, let me listen to this guy preach. And a lot of guys now have their videos up there on their website, and most of them have at least audio. And I enjoy just hearing from people. Somebody will say, have you heard so-and-so? And I'll say, no, I've never heard that person. Mm -hmm. And I like to just pull the website up, and if I can find, I get blessed by hearing them. I hear good things, and then I can say, you know, maybe I wouldn't have done it that way. <laughs> but it challenges you to listen to other people. Another thing that may sound a little strange is I like going on YouTube and watching TED Talks. And TED Talks, you could just Google that or put it in the uh, YouTube search query. And it's, uh, they have different venues across the country, but it's, it's, most of them are, are assigned to a person who has a single topic and has 20 minutes to speak on it without notes. And I have learned a lot from just watching those TED Talks. First of all, in realizing, and, and I need to realize this, a lot can get said in 20 minutes. You don't have to say it in an hour. Um, the other thing is, there are TED Talks about how to make TED Talks. <laughs> there are TED Talks about how to make effective presentations. Things that talk about, for instance, uh, I watched a psychologist who said the hand gesture, this, says, I'm putting distance between you and me. Whereas the hand gesture with palms open says, I'm open to you, and this is a more receptive pose to take. Well, I thought, I, you know, 10 years ago, I said, that's a bunch of psychobabble, but you know what I found myself doing when I preach? I found myself talking like this and putting my arms out instead of, you know, like pushing people away, want to welcome people and model the openness of the Lord. So those types of things, I know that sounds kind of trivial and simple, but sometimes God can take a little nugget of, of a word of advice or a practical insight and it'll become a part of your delivery. Um, another thing that, uh, that I've enjoyed doing uh, in my previous church and here is coaching and um, working alongside staff to develop their communication skills. Because 
many of our staff members today are not seminary educated. Some of them who are seminary educated who went and got an MRE or an MACE did not have to take a preaching course. So um, a lot of our staff people, they have to stand up in front of their groups, their volunteers, their teachers who lead in that division, but they've never been taught how to speak to people, how to prepare and package a presentation. So I have found that one of my biggest demands for mentoring and shepherding staff people and lay people is to um, give them a book or to coach them and then do a little, a little practicum, giving them a chance to stand up and put it to practice and get feedback. Kind of a little mini seminary course for staff people and occasionally letting lay folks get involved in that as well. All of these things help me grow. I mean, think about it. If I'm challenging the staff members on effective communication tools, I know they're going to hear what I'm saying and listen to me differently next time they hear me. So it's a great accountability tool to teach and also to practice. Now, focus. This is where he wanted me to slow down. Well, they were, they were just boom, 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 yes. bullet points. Right. I, I know it, and I'm, I'm glad you called that my attention. I, the older I get the more I believe that apart from spiritual values, that focus is the most important value for a preacher, focus. So here are some uh, qualities about focus, truths about focus. Number one, focus determines priority. If you are focused on something, what that means is you have elevated that to the number one slot. You may not say it's number one, but it, whatever you focus on most is number one, whether you rank it that way or not. Focus determines priority. It either determines it or it reveals it. <laughs> and um, focus also eliminates distractions. It eliminates distractions because if you, if you think about what you're focusing on, it means there are other things you're not focusing on. And that's either because you were distracted or because you intentionally said, I'm focusing on this. By focusing on one thing deliberately, you are relegating other things to subordinate positions. When I first came to First Baptist, Dr. Stanley is an avid photographer. And he, talked, he started tutoring me in photography and took me on a few photographic outings and things. But he said, I love the power of the zoom lens because he says, I can be looking at a landscape and I can see a mountain range, and I can see a, 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 a placid lake in front of it on which the range is reflected. I can see a moose over here. I can see or a herd of buffalo out in uh, you know Yellowstone. Or I can see a stream flowing down this mountain. And he says there's all kinds of amazing imagery. Or he says I can look right here on the left side of the lake, and I can see this little patch of yellow wildflowers. He said, I have the ability to leave all of that and zoom in just on those yellow flowers. And he said, I love the ability to determine not just what goes in my picture, but what goes out of it. Mm -hmm. and when he said that, I thought, is that not the challenge of a preacher? Not just in the preaching and how you structure a sermon, but in how you live your life through the week is that I've got to get into my focus the priority of pre preparing, praying over the text, spending time with God in the Word, recording my insights, packaging and structuring the outline, and then putting the finishing touches on it. I've got to have that focus because it not only determines your priority, but it eliminates the things that should not be your priority. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that focus increases concentration. What I'm focused on will, will occupy my thoughts. So if you're tracking, focus determines priority. Focus eliminates distractions. Focus increases concentration. And write this down, focus builds momentum. Mm -hmm. If you will study the lives of great people who've accomplished great things, one thing that, that marked their lives was focus. Mm -hmm. They kept coming back. They kept refusing to be distracted. 
And by focusing upon it day after day after day after day after day, it builds a, a momentum, and hopefully that is a supernaturally blessed momentum. <clears throat> now here are some problems with focus if you're ready for these. One problem is when you don't have a focus, right? When you're just operating with a blurry lens, nothing is in view, and you're just going from crisis to crisis, and a pastor and a preacher living like that um, prepares and preaches on the fly. Another problem is when you have the wrong focus. Not just when you don't have a focus, but when the focus that you have is the wrong one when your focus is not where it should be. You and I know that, that family requirements and family needs, that becomes our focus and should always be a part of our focus. But we're talking specifically about the deliberate decision you make as a preacher to keep preaching as a primary focus in your life, as a primary focus. Another one is when you're trying to focus on too much. So when there's no focus, when there's the wrong thing in focus, and when you're trying to focus on too many things. Now, a distracted focus is one of the greatest causes of ineffectiveness there is. You say, well, um, can you back that up? Well, where do you want to start? Would you say that David had a distracted focus when he should have been at battle, but he looked at a woman bathing on the roof next door? Yeah, that's called a distracted focus. Mm -hmm. And we could play that scenario out time and time again, not just in Scripture, but in history. So it's one of the greatest causes of ineffectiveness and failure. Failure. If we were to assess both ineffectiveness and failure, in a pastor's life, in a church's life, you could even take this outside and put it in the corporate world. Many times it can be traced back to a distracted focus. Now to kind of wrap things up and then open it up for a little interaction Q&A, what I thought I would do is to um, highlight three resources for you that, um, and you know, everybody's got a book they want you to read, so the last thing I want you to do is just think I'm standing here trying to give you more busy busy stuff to take care of. But several years ago, um, I went to Florida on a little getaway, and it was kind of an unplanned thing, but I went. And I ended up in Sarasota, and I went to um, a Barnes & Noble near the hotel where I was staying. And I went over to the business section, and I'm not one of these. I like to read books about theology. I like to read exegetical commentaries. And um, I like books about prophecy, and I also like political, reading about politics and American history. So I'm not going to go over and check out business books very much. But I saw this was over here on the shelf, and I just, you know, I don't want, God didn't tell me to go over there. But I went over there, saw this book. It's the last one of its kind. I pulled it out. It's called The One Thing. And I want to recommend this to you if you would enjoy being challenged a little bit. This book is written by the co-founder of Keller Williams Realty. And his name is Gary Keller. I, I believe he's a Christian, don't know that. He makes a few references to faith. But the principle in this book is all about, as a person, you finding out and determining what your one thing is. Obviously, all of us will have many things to which we devote our time, energy, and attention. But if you had to narrow down to say this, like remember what Paul said, this one thing I do, mm -hmm. what would be this one thing for you? If we just backed up and we just said, we're going to decide today, preaching will be my one thing. This book tells you how to begin thinking about preaching as your one thing. He doesn't talk about preaching. That's how you would apply it. Mm -hmm. So he talks about how to structure your time around that one thing how to help other people around you understand that, that is your one thing. But I am telling you that if you're called to preach and you don't make preaching your one thing, someone else will determine what your one thing That's is. Right. Mm -hmm. That's good. You decide it or it will be decided for you. And if you want to take your preaching ability with God's help to the next level, you've got to decide that it's going to be a priority.
Who was the author again? His name is Gary Keller. Thank you. Yeah, and it's just called The One Thing. And Levi Skipper was in this session uh, in the morning, and he told me something I didn't even know, that uh, Keller has a One Thing podcast now mm. where he features different uh, entrepreneurial leadership uh, leaders and business leaders who talk about the power of focus in a leader's life. You say, well, it's not so scriptural and, and uh, biblically based. Well, it may not be. I, I don't know. I'll have to check out the podcast. But I didn't see anything in this, in this that gave me a check in my spirit. It just made me to want to be more passionate about protecting my sermon preparation and, uh, and prioritizing preaching in my life. Okay. The second book is this. This is an old copy. The new one is yellow. It looks different, but I, I like hanging on to my original. This is called Secrets of Dynamic Communication, and it's by Ken Davis, who's a Christian comedian. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ken, but he, he was kind of the John the Baptist for Tim Hawkins and John Chris. He kind of led the way in Christian comedy, but he's still around, and he's moved more from comedy into coaching people, especially church leaders, on becoming better communicators. I will tell you this. If you just want a, an easy read that is one of the easiest books to apply to preaching, this I would say above all else. I believe so much in this. There, these are on back order everywhere. Amazon only had four copies. I tried to order enough copies to bring and give to you. That's how much I believe in this. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, even his organization has had to order a reprinting of the book. If I get the copies I've asked Ken Davis to send me, I want to send you one free. <laughs> if you want it, I'll send you one free of charge because I just took our entire discipleship pastoral staff through this and uh, they ate it up. Even our youth pastor says, why didn't I have this book in seminary? This is the best guide for how to prepare a message. He does not get into exegeting the text hermeneutics, all those kinds of things you need to look at a passage. But he does talk about how to effectively structure it with focus. And his whole premise is you must summarize the essence of your message in one sentence. Mm. Everything that you're going to say in that sermon must be distilled into one overarching thematic sentence. And if you've ever taken preaching, Haddon Robinson says the same thing about the text. You have an exegetical idea or central idea, one sentence, then you can convert that to a sermon idea. But if you just want to get out of the weeds, this one, I say, go for it and I'll send it to you. Here's the last one, and then I'll be done. This is called The Big Idea by Dave Ferguson. And there's another book that's very similar to The Big Idea by Dave Ferguson, and it's called um, Sticky Church. And it's by a guy named Larry Osborne out in California. Um, this uh, Dave Ferguson pastors up in the Chicago area. What is this about? Well, you know how um, one thing, focus, right? One sentence, focus. Big idea, focus. Mm -hmm. What these have in common is getting a laser sharp focus. And when he opens this book, he talks about how in the history of our churches, we have built our churches upon multiple programs that present multiple truths to different age groups every Sunday. So hypothetically, on a Sunday morning after the morning service, imagine this still happening somewhere where a mother and a dad, let's just say a single mom, whatever, family leaves the campus of the church. Kids in the back seat, what did you all learn today? Well, the third grader was in Sunday school. They had a truth presented in there. Then went to children's church, had a different scriptural passage and truth in there. The middle schooler went to middle school Sunday school. Then youth church. There are, there are th three and four ideas now. Then the adults, they went to Sunday school somewhere. They were on Lifeway or Gospel Project or Life and Work or Explore the Bible. And then this, the preacher had a sermon followed by the minister of music's little tirade on his little scriptural introduction, whatever he was going to talk about. You know what I'm saying? And then we showed a video on shoeboxes. And so just imagine 
all these competing ideas. And his thesis is that unless there was a clearly defined next step, then the next step of discipleship and growing closer to God died the death of competing ideas. So he said, how do we take all of that, lasso it together, and harness our entire Sunday morning experience around one big idea? From how we dress our ushers to how we theme the graphics on the screen to the curriculum that is studied in every age group. So that one big idea drives the day and that big idea is determined by what the pastor's sermon is going to be. He talks about breaking it down with enough lead time to get staff together or lay leaders, whatever your church culture is, and they collaborate on helping the pastor determine the sermon series that's coming up. You have to work a couple of months out to get the resources to put a creative team together. We actually started implementing this in my last church, and then I came to First Baptist, and it's not the proper setting to do it. But what I loved about it was it built a bridge between the pastor's message and everything that happened on campus that Sunday morning. Now, Osborne Sticky Church, his model is built upon the sermon being preached in the morning and then all of the small groups through the week, their conversation and interaction in the curriculum was built upon what he preached that morning. Same idea, but it's about harnessing the focus. And guess what? When you know everybody's counting on you, Guess what that forces yeah. you to <laughs> That forces you to be focused, to be uh, prepared, and to work ahead of time. So these are just a few little tools that I thought I'd share with you. And I want to thank you for letting me give you an overview of, of inadequacy and how God can use it in your life as a preacher. Now I want to open the floor and see if there's any um, if there are any questions any of you might have or any anything you'd like to add to what's been shared today. Or and it can be it doesn't have to be about anything we've talked about now. You can ask me anything. Okay. When just being honest and transparent, when preaching becomes more of a burden, more just weary, how, how do you regain the, the excitement, the joy, the passion? Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Well, my, this my first knee-jerk is, um, how much time have you taken off and when? <laughs> Next question. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. No, that's good. That's yeah, good. yeah, really. Because um, I'm, I'm telling you, and I know this depends on the setting where you are, mm-hmm. but your preaching is doomed to become a burden when you are no longer operating at your peak effectiveness just in your daily battle. Mm-hmm. And you know, the only way I think to hit refresh is to get away from church, away from home, if that's possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, Dr. Stanley used to talk about when he was in Atlanta, his first few years were rough and rocky and he, he said, I hated the sight of the church. Now, that's strong when you say, I just don't even like driving up into the parking lot. And he bought a travel trailer. He said, I bought a cheap camper and parked it in my backyard. And he said, I'd drive it out to Stone Mountain and I would go stay out there for about five nights at Stone Mountain. And he said, I would come back ready to preach. Mm -hmm. Now, not every preacher has the freedom to make decisions like that. But I'm telling you, in my experience, you got to get away when you're at that point. It's just my. Anybody else want to chime in on that? When preaching, when you when preaching, it's burdensome. Would you agree? It's time for yeah, just a brief, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and and not allowing that that uh, feeling of needing a break or a vacation to uh, make you feel guilty for it as well. Because uh, sometimes the enemy would would make us feel as if we are inadequate to do the job that God has caused us to do. What, what's That's what's exactly. the best way to respond to your congregation who, if you're not up in the pulpit, they're not happy? Does, does that make sense? And then you feel this sense of, you know, like trying to coach them that we have a shared leadership model here. There's multiple people that can preach. Mm-hmm. and But there's enough of that traditional, ah, Pastor, that's your job. Does that make sense? 
Well, I mean, I'm the guy that has to hear it when ours is gone. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and I think that's just human nature, and a lot of that is traditional where the senior pastor is supposed to be there every Sunday. But I think you just have to get to the place where you try to manage that as carefully as you can, sensitively, but also don't let it keep you from taking the break you need. Right. That's good. It's also good when your leadership team with you yes. is the one that suggests and explains it to the church family rather than you saying, I've got to have some time. Yes. Real quick follow-up from this morning. We were talking about planning out church calendar, your preaching schedule and everything. When you sit down and plan out, he plans out a, a year-long preaching calendar. Where do you start with that planning process? I mean, how do you, you you've got let's say 52 Sundays or 50 Sundays you're going to be preaching or 50 Wednesdays and you, you're going to plan out an annual preaching calendar. Where do you draw from? How do you start filling in content? Well, first it's a list of, of, of books that I would like to cover like exegetical series and then topical series like for instance for 2020 I want to do a prophecy series. By the way, I only speak occasionally on Sundays. I preach every Wednesday. So when he said, that's my sermon mapping is more about Wednesdays. I usually don't get but about two weeks lead time on a Sunday sermon. So my focus is on Wednesdays. So it's usually just a list. And out of that, I'll arbitrarily assign it across the year. It gets tweaked a lot, but it just starts with a list I'll make initially about areas of interest, mentioned current events to which I think I'll need to issue a response in a series without sounding like I'm reacting to something political, but from a biblical perspective. And uh, then I was telling him another thing that I've learned to do more, instead of being like Moses, go up on the mountain, say, God, tell me what to preach. Uh, I do ask for his leadership, but I've learned to rely on team members to say, what do you all think would be a good series to bring to the church at this time? And how interesting to see how God uses the team members who really walk with him and whose finger is on the pulse of the church to speak into that as well. That's real helpful. Okay, we we the session in there is at three, so we'll break. Uh, Ray, I'll let you close, but God, I will linger in here if anybody would like to come up and speak to me privately. And also, if you want that uh, Ken Davis book, I'll be glad to send it to you.